You're listening to the Two Tongues Podcast. And now your hosts, Kyle and Chris. Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. How are you guys? It's been a little while. Uh, I don't know. It's been a month, maybe. Three, four weeks. But... um, I've been busy, you guys, uh, but I did get one for you today that's a little bit unusual, so maybe you will forgive me. Um, it is unusual when it's not. What do I mean by that? Well, by the time we get to the middle, you're going to be like, ah, I see why Chris picked this. Um, but just a little bit of background. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about a secret project conducted by the U.S. Army. In the 1980s, right? That's not the normal topic that we like to talk about. We um, we generally focus a lot on uh, mysticism and religion and philosophy and all kinds of things like that. Um, so there's going to be some overlap. But before I get there, I just want to give you some background. Um, I found a YouTube video, uh, uh, YouTube channel rather, and podcast called The Y Files. Uh, some fellow named AJ Hosett. It turns out he was a producer on one of those Ghost Hunter shows years ago. Now he's doing this show um, where he talks all about sort of unsolved mysteries and sort of uh, uh, a lot of that's like ancient civilization, Graham Hancock type, type stuff, which I which I really enjoy. Um, out of place artifacts and um, but also a lot of UFO stuff, a lot of alien stuff. And um, honestly, it's not my favorite topic. It's interesting, you know. I mean. It's interesting, right? But I wouldn't ordinarily seek it out. But the guy does a really good job of uh, telling the stories. And um, really, they're really compelling. A lot of shit I just didn't know. And one of the things that comes up over and over and over again are these secret military programs that have to do with UFOs and supernatural shit. And you're like, what is going on? What is the federal government doing getting involved in this stuff? So you might know um, of some of these things, you know, like, They've come up often like on Joe Rogan's podcast and things like that. Um, MK Ultra, um, Project Stargate. Um, there was the, uh, I can't remember specifically, but if you, but uh, there was the Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, who was apparently fed LSD uh, by, the, by the government. And he, you know, turns out being a, being a, uh, in ruining his life and, and turning him into a, a criminal. And, um, you know, all these kind of crazy things. And one of the themes that comes up is the government exploring human potential in a, in a way that allows them to get some kind of military advantage. And so the idea is if you can make human beings uh, stronger, faster, smarter, um, then you're going to have stronger, faster, smarter soldiers. If you can get human beings who have extrasensory perception, maybe you have an edge over the enemy, right? You're going to be able to... Um, read their thoughts. You're going to be able to mind control. You're going to be able to whatever. You can see how there might be military applications. And uh, the fact that there's evidence that the United States government has done this, it's kind of mind-blowing. And it's not just one program. It's been happening since the 40s at least. And uh, one of the things that recurs in this realm is the idea of remote viewing. It's not something that I would have given a lot of credence to, although uh, if you have a chance to check out the Y Files, did an episode on Project Stargate, uh, which covers remote viewing. It's uh, kind of an interesting story. Um, also, the episode he did on the Gateway process, which is what inspired this episode. So I'd encourage you to check those out. I thought they were fantastic. Um, so back to remote viewing. The idea here is um, if if it was true that there were some people who had this ability, um, it's connected to things like out-of-body experiences and uh, all kinds of other out-there sort of things. Um, Could we make them better at it? Could we get them to practice it? Could Could we find some way to enhance those abilities? And then could we turn around and use those abilities for espionage, right? Could we spy on the Soviets with our minds? That kind of thing. You know, it's kind of really, really interesting, but also out there. And that brings me to what we're going to talk about today, which is a program, um, again, program from the early 80s that we, we at least we have evidence of it existing in the early 80s. Maybe it's a lot older than that. 
Um, and it comes from a document that came to light, um, which is a, um, a paper that was written by a military, uh, somebody in the army to their commander to give them some insight into this particular program that was going on so they could understand it, so they could um, train people uh, up in this process, that they could help people understand it who are working with the material. And um, uh, I'll just show you if you can see <clears throat> the document. It's got the official, you know, U.S. Navy letterhead, uh, Army letterhead and all that. Um, it's like 28 pages long. It's one of the craziest effing things I ever read in my life. Uh, and it has, like, I didn't, I couldn't cover it all. I couldn't cover it all in a way that was going to make sense and be concise enough to make a podcast out of. I could, probably could have made three podcasts out of this. Um, so without further ado, let me get into it. All right, so the title of this is, it's like a little subject line at the top. It says, Analysis and Assessment of Gateway Process. What the fuck is the gateway process? And what is the, what is the Army doing with it? All right, so this report um, was given uh, by a military intelligence off officer. Uh, his name was Lieutenant Colonel Wayne McDonald. And he was writing this to his commander in June of 1983. And the gist is, um, there's a, a place called the Monroe Institute. I looked it up separately. Uh, if it turns out it exists, it's been around for a long time. It's um, one of these early uh, cutting-edge uh, institutions to train psychiatrists, psychologists, um, that kind of thing. And they talk about the Monroe Institute's technique for achieving altered states of consciousness. And this is what they call the gateway process or the gateway experience. And Lieutenant Colonel McDonald was tasked to provide his commander with an assessment of that process. Um, before I dive in, I want to tell you um, one little kind of interesting nugget of, of the mystery was that uh, when this document came out, there was like one or two pages that were missing from the report. And for years and years and years, people knew about this uh, paper, and uh, it was fascinating and interesting, but uh, it was missing a couple pages, and that made it even more mysterious, you know? Um, and then eventually, uh, there was a, um, what do they call those, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests that, that came through, and after, you know, uh, a long stretch of time, those missing pages reappeared. And if you want, you could you can look this up and you can read the whole document for yourself. I would encourage you to do it. Uh, it's fucking crazy. That being said, that brings me to the first section, which I'm going to call. Um, well, let, let me just do a little intro here. Um, well, okay, so I'll call this section the intro. It'll be brief. So in the document, uh, Lieutenant Colonel McDonald says, "I found it necessary to delve into quantum mechanics." In order to construct a scientifically valid model of how consciousness functions under the influence of the brain hemisphere synchronization techniques employed by Gateway, and to explain the means by which expanded consciousness transcends the space-time dimension. You see what I mean? <laughs> I found it necessary, he says, to use physics to bring the phenomena of out-of-body states into the language of physical science to put it in a frame of reference suited to objective analysis. So you're going you're gonna to have to deal with a little bit of this sort of dry language, even though we're talking about fascinating subjects, because this is a military report, and so it's going to read kind of like a military report. Um, and basically what he's saying is there's some process that Monroe Institute developed that involves synchronizing the brain waves across both hemispheres of your brain, and this seems to elicit some sort of altered state of consciousness. And we don't know why or what it does or what it makes possible, but this is kind of how it's being framed up. Um, it, it also allows, it allows consciousness to transcend the space-time dimension. So, okay, so we're getting, we're getting right into the woo. Uh, but um, the lieutenant colonel, is, his job is to make this um, intelligible to his commander, so he... He's going to try to put this in the in the framework of quantum physics so that we can talk about it scientifically. Talk about this crazy woo-woo stuff, but we can talk about it scientifically. He says, 
This study, I hope, will make a useful guide for other, um, I, I don't know how this abbreviation is supposed to be pronounced. Um, it's USA INSCOM, right? United States Army uh, Intelligence and Security Command, however that's said. So he wants it to be a helpful guide for these U.S. intelligence um, folks, personnel, who are required to take the gateway training or work with gateway materials. So we don't know the scope of this program, but that, that <laughs> what I just described to you, this brainwave synchronization, out-of-body, eliciting out-of-body experience, altered states of consciousness, this thing that they're borrowing from the Monroe Institute, they're training U.S. military intelligence officers with it. And others are working with the material that the data that's gained from these exercises. So what does that mean? That brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call the process. He's going to call this um, brainwave hemisphere synchronization, he's going to call it hemisync. So it's got its own little military abbreviation like all the others. So I'm just telling you, hemisync is just hemisphere synchronization. Um, and it begins like this. Remember, this is the process we're going to talk about first. He says, gateway and hemisync, okay? That's what we're talking about. The gateway experience is designed to alter consciousness, defined when the EEG pattern of both hemispheres are simultaneously equal in amplitude and frequency. Although hemisync seems to be rare in ordinary consciousness, audio techniques can induce and sustain it. Okay, so in normal waking, waking consciousness, there's some variation in the uh, wave patterns produced uh, by the different hemispheres of the brain, and he's saying there's some sort of audio manipulation that can be applied that will help to synchronize the brain waves, and that seems to unlock some interesting shit. So, so let's keep going. He says, the hemisync techniques take advantage of a phenomena known as the frequency following response, or FFR. If a subject hears a sound at a frequency which emulates one associated with the operation of the brain, the brain will mimic the pattern, adjusting its brainwave output. And then he explains, if the subject is fully awake, but hears sound frequencies which approximate brain waves at the theta level, the subject's brain will alter from the normal beta to the theta level. Okay, so um, so the, the theta brain waves are associated with your with your you being asleep, the, you know, with the brain waves that are produced while you're asleep. So imagine there's some kind of audio technique, some kind of sound that can be pumped into your to your ears or your body or whatever. Um, and that uh, FFR process, your brain is just going to sense those um, new frequencies, kind of mimic the pattern, ad adjust to mirror those frequencies, and then you can basically be, be put to sleep, or at least put into the condition you would be in if you were sleeping, um, which is interesting. He, now he goes on, he says, the objective is to produce ever higher amplitude and frequency of brainwave output. <laughs> Listen to this. In this way, Gateway endeavors to provide access to new categories of information not available to ordinary consciousness. Okay, okay. So, so the idea here seems to be something like this. We, we, we can use some sort of audio techniques to get the uh, brain waves from both hemispheres to synchronize. And once you do that, you can kind of dial up or down the frequency and amplitude using that FFR response, right? So you can get the brain waves, um, the brainwave frequency to, to go up, the waves wavelength closer together or for, further apart, and you can kind of manipulate that with some sort of audio technique. And the idea is that when you do that, imagine you're opening yourself up to, okay, and I don't know how, any other way to say this, but also I'll just say, um, when we're in waking consciousness, we have a certain experience. When we're in dreaming consciousness, we have a certain experience. And there's information, data that can be, that can be garnered from uh, a dream. Um, I, you know, I, I have an interest in depth psychology, and so uh, symbols and, and dream interpretations are something that I take seriously. Um, 
communication with the unconscious or the um, collective collective unconscious is something I think is a legitimate interpretation of what happens in dreams. But, but it, you can't deny that you see images in dreams, you see faces, you see activity, things going on, you participate in those things. That's really very much the same as our waking consciousness, but not information you have access to while you're awake, only while you're asleep. So imagine there are more places that your consciousness can go beyond the waking state and the dream state. And there's other information that can be had in those places. What, what that information is, I guess we're going to have to wait and see, but imagine it's possible to induce that in somebody and then to send them all into realms of experience entirely unknown. And there are people who will talk about having a revelation, whether it's in a religious context or just in a psychological context. It's like I have some kind of revelation. Maybe it's uh, something I learned in a dream. It was an epiphany. Something dawned on me. Um, you know, there was, some, there was some, some image, some symbol, some meaning from the unconscious that I was able to make some sense of. A lot of people say that after they've had some sort of a psychedelic experience or a mystical experience, um, that, the, that the understanding, like there's some event that happens and the understanding kind of unfolds over time and it's like, man, there was some, some real knowledge there and it took me, it took me a, a while to digest and make sense of. And there's so something like that here. Like imagine that's possible <clears throat> and there's some other source of information that we have access to or might have access to like that um, in, uh, a pl uh, in, a, in a place with higher, higher frequency. Um, and we're going to tie this, and he's going to tie this back to, and this, you know, if this sounds, if this is losing you already, um, he kind of brings this up at one point that that physics has has proved that matter and energy are nothing but um, different wavelengths of the same electromagnetic energy field, something like that. And so the difference between matter and energy is just a matter of frequency. And if the human brain waves, you know, being associated with consciousness are like that, you know, what, what might we be able to manipulate? And, and what's the connection between consciousness and energy and matter? So we're going to get into that. So you can kind of see where, where the, my interest came from here. But the, again, the goal is to provide access to new categories of information that aren't available to ordinary consciousness. He goes on, he says, The gateway process causes the body to begin vibrating coherently at approximately seven to seven and a half cycles per second, which propagates in consonance with the electrostatic field of the earth. This puts the body's energy field into homogeneity with its surrounding environment and promotes movement of the seat of consciousness into the surrounding environment. This permits the subject to experience an out-of-body movement. All right, so let's stop there for a second. So, so imagine synchronizing your, your brainwave output, um, ratcheting that up to this range of 7 to 7.5 seven hertz, and that frequency resonates with the electrostatic field of the Earth. Um, and this is scientifically ver verifiable. The Earth has a frequency. In fact, all, uh, all atoms have kind of a, a different frequency. The Earth, you know, and all aggregate things do as well. And so the Earth is no exception. So imagine you, the, the frequency of your brain waves can be synced up to the frequency of the environment that you're in. And the consequence of this is that your consciousness is somehow no longer bound into your body, but expanded to to seem as though it's bound to the earth, like it becomes a part of this greater uh, field, and you experience this out of body movement. Right now, you feel like you're floating. You feel like you've come out of yourself. And we hear about these sorts of phenomenon and near death experiences and all sorts of psychedelic experiences and mystical experiences. Exactly this kind of thing. And people say, who have those experiences, things like, I became one with the universe. So you can imagine, 
if your brainwave frequency somehow became part of, resonated with, and became part of this greater field, this, this you know, of the same frequency, uh, that you might feel like you were one with the environment, right? You've come out of yourself. You're greater than yourself. This is what people mean when they talk about expanded consciousness and altered states of experience. Expanded how? Well, this is giving us sort of a scientific lens to understand how it's expanded. It's expanded from my body into the greater environment around me. And that feels to me like an out-of-body experience. All right, he says, The techniques which comprise the gateway training process include a protracted humming sound that sets up a feeling of vibration in the head. The participant engages in resonant tuning by humming along. So now we're getting into this to the nuts and bolts. So there's some sort of a um, sound that you're exposed to, and you hum along with that sound, and um, that puts you into, it's almost, it almost sounds to me like some sort of a um, mesmerism or some sort of hypnosis, uh, that you're getting yourself into a, into a state. And this is something that you see in meditation, by the way, when, uh, when yogis, uh, as an example, are meditating on the, uh, on the word om. It's om, it's this, it's this vibratory pattern that is designed to um, prevent their being distracted and to clear their mind. And it has some effect on the body into helping um, deepen this sort of meditative experience. So this is not an unusual thing to hear, but this is where it begins. By the way, uh, people with advanced meditation, these yogis I'm referring to, um, they claim to experience altered states of consciousness, to be able to induce them in themselves through those exercises. And it lines up perfectly with this. All right, he goes on. After that, he is exposed to the hemi-sync sound frequencies and is encouraged to focus those feelings which accompany the synchronization of brainwaves. Next, the hemi-sync frequencies are expanded to put the body at the threshold of sleep. Okay, so then these special audio, you know, they don't tell us what they are, of course, these are, these are top secret, but, you know, whatever these audio uh, um, uh, noises or whatever they are um, that are designed to cause the hemisphere synchronization, then they get introduced. So you, you get into this meditative state, um, then these sounds get introduced that synchronize your brainwaves. Now they can, you know, dial up or down the frequency of your brainwaves across the board, across both hemispheres. And they do that to bring you right to the threshold of sleep, going from, uh, going, you know, from the beta to the theta state. He says, when brainwaves fall below the Planck distance, which is 10 to the negative 33 hertz, they come so close together that there is virtual continuity. The gateway experience is designed to enable perception in those dimensions where speeds below the Planck's distance apply. Okay, so for those who, who don't know, the Planck distance um, is a, an idea from quantum physics, basically says that you can you know, shrink down a macro object or you can zoom in on, on a macro object um, to a certain point, and at a certain point, classical physics breaks down and quantum physics takes over. And that threshold is the Planck distance. Okay, so that's what he's saying. Now, if your brain waves fall below the Planck distance, now remember, you've got you have to picture this brain wave pattern, um, and as you ratchet up the frequency, you get you get more of these waves. They're closer together, um, and imagine them getting so close together that it's almost undetectable that there's any change at all. Right? It becomes a virtual continuity. So imagine if your brainwaves got to a, to a state like that. Then you're experiencing at the quantum level somehow. And he says this is what the gateway experience is designed to do, to enable perception in those dimensions where speed below Planck's distance apply. So you can have some awareness of the quantum realm within you and all around you. I mean, we know it exists. We, we do experiments, we have data, we know 
you know, the quant quantum universe is real, but we don't have any consciousness of it. We don't have any awareness of it. We don't really know what information is there. We don't really know much about it at all. And they're suggesting that people can be trained and this technique can be applied to allow them awareness in that realm. Okay, he says, once the participant has achieved this state of greatly expanded awareness, he is ready to begin problem solving or remote viewing. Okay, so imagine having a problem that's impossible to solve, maybe some very difficult. Let's use a military example. Let's talk about, um, uh, the, what was it called, the, uh, uh, the project, the Oppenheimer and the project with uh, developing the nuclear weapons. Um, shit, I can't remember the name, but you know what I mean. So the government has a giant program where they put together um, all the best, best and brightest people to solve this intractable problem, how to create uh, a nuclear bomb. And they manage it, of course, miraculously in a relatively short period of time. They solve, they crack this impossible problem. Albert Einstein, by the way, said it was impossible. It couldn't be done. And, um, and Oppenheimer and his team figured out how to do it. Imagine if you, could, if you could put a scientist or a team of them in a state where they have access to information not available to anybody else, you know, information hidden in the quantum world. And they can apply that to solve problems. It, 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 it reminds me of the difference between ordinary computing and quantum computing, right? It's like, imagine how quickly you can crack a code. Imagine how quickly you could figure out what needs to be done to make a nuclear bomb work. If they had quantum computers back then, this is like, this is like allowing your brain to become a quantum computer to solve problems that you can't ordinarily solve. And also, it, it permits remote viewing. So you, you have to remember, if you had this out-of-body experience and you become part of the environment uh, and your consciousness is still functioning and perception is still possible, what does that mean? Does that mean if my consciousness is attached to the earth in the way that I feel it's attached to my body right now, that I would be able to um, perceive the earth like I perceive my body. Like I want to I spy on the Russians just like I'm looking at my, my, my right hand or spy on the Americans like I'm looking at my left hand. Imagine something like that if you can. This is, this is the remote viewing idea. And apparently the gateway process was specifically designed for espionage, to allow military intelligence to do exactly this, to spy on the Soviets by achieving out-of-body experience and altered states of consciousness in this very particular way. Whew. Okay. All right, so there's the woo for you. And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call the model. Okay, and I have to talk about the model because this is where the interesting stuff... It gets more technical, and it's very important, I think. And there's some uh, some things here that I want to I want to mention. Um, and then we're gonna, in the final section, we're going to talk about. And I guess we'll do a little bit of that during this section as well. We'll talk about why this was interesting to me, why I decided it was worth talking about on the podcast. Um, already, it's interesting, and you understand, but it's not exactly my bread and butter. Okay, so you'll see why in a minute. Again, this section is called the model. He says, The energy grid which composed the nucleus of the atom vibrates at approximately 10 to the 22 hertz. At 70 degrees Fahrenheit, an atom oscillates at a rate of 10 to the 15 hertz. An entire molecule vibrates in the range of 10 to the 9 hertz. A live human cell vibrates at approximately 10 to the 3 hertz. The point is that the human being, like the universe which surrounds him, is nothing more than a complex system of energy fields. The so-called states of matter are actually variances in the state of energy, and human consciousness is a function of the interaction of energy in two opposite states, motion versus rest. Alright, so you can start to see what I mean. Now we're talking about the mysteries of consciousness. So now you've got my attention. 
Not only that, but he talks about, again, he explained what I was trying to tee up earlier, that the reason why all this stuff about frequency and, and frequency modulation and synchronization and, and, and all that stuff, the reason why that's important and, and altering your consciousness is because everything is made of uh, vibrating fields of energy. And the differences between you know, one thing and another are differences in frequency and amplitude. And he says that that's exactly the case with states of matter. And this is exactly what Einstein's E equals MC square tells us. Energy and mass are, you know, um, the, same, the same thing, essentially. And the difference being exactly this. A change of uh, frequency, dialing up or down frequency and amplitude. So, so all that really exists is energy and um, its motion, right, its frequency and amplitude makes the difference in um, the existence of one thing versus another. And then he goes a step further and says, and human consciousness is the function of the interaction of energy. And I don't know if this is going to stand out as obvious to you, but what I see here when he says that consciousness is, 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 is an interaction, uh, a consequence of energy interacting, um, you have something that I would describe as a process. And we did a lot of, of talking about Alfred North Whitehead and, and process metaphysics, and I think it lines up it lines up entirely with what he's describing. And then you get the idea of the Ouroboros that comes up, which we talk about from mythology all the time. He's saying that he's saying that everything is energy, and what, that's like saying everything is one. God is one, right? That's that metaphysical idea of the oneness, the unity as the ground of being. And that oneness, the absolute, whatever, that's what he's going to call this later. But what that is, um, is something that can interact with itself. It's just all energy, right? And energy in motion. And that allows, that allows, you know, a wave to bump into another wave. You know, it allows some sort of interaction, some sort of experience. So energy experiencing itself, self-experience. And I've said that many, many times as a mystical intuition, that that is what being is. That is what is at the heart of reality. Is It's God's self-experience. Those are the words I've used. And God, when, we, when I just try to describe God, one of my favorite analogies, um, which I borrowed from Jordan Peterson, I'm very grateful that he, he, uh, that he gave, it, gave that to me, is this idea of the Ouroboros. It's a oneness that is composed of opposites. It is the generative union of opposites. And in and, and myth, it's described as usually like a female goddess and a male god together as one thing, creating something like a cosmic egg, something like a singularity. And when those forces are separated, the feminine and the masculine, chaos and order, that separation is the act of creation itself. And it's, a, it's an allusion to the idea that whilst these things are one, they cannot experience themselves. They, ha they can't because they're one thing. How is, it, how is it possible to experience if there's only one? There must be something to experience, something apart from you, something other than you. So when the Bible says that, that, cre that creation is, is, a, is a matter of separation, separating light from dark, separating the heavens from the earth, separating woman from man, this is the idea of the Ouroboros being separated so that experience is possible, right? So this thing that was one is now many. You know, this, this, this original unity is now a multiplicity. Even though it's one thing, even though it's, it's, the, it's God, the Ouroboros, it's energy. Once it's separated from itself, it can then experience itself. And that, my friends, is what reality is. Everything that we think of as matter and activity, all of that, That's experience. You, you don't know it any other way. I don't know it any other way. It, I, we know it through experience. So creation that we think about from a religious perspective is the birth of experience. And this is, this is what he's saying in a scientific way. Human consciousness is a function of the interaction. This is the process. Process of what? Of experience. Of what? The only thing that exists, energy. And we could say God, we could replace energy with God, and, and we're, we're basically talking exactly like we generally do. 
and these uh, and these energy and opposite states, motion and rest. This is a this is a, a, a way of framing the Ouroboros. I might say Tiamat and Apsu, chaos and order, feminine and masculine. You know, actual and potential. Any any opposites you want, really. But he's choosing energy at rest and energy in motion. Those are the opposites that he's choosing, and it helps you to see that they're one. And it also allows you to see how one can be many. Energy in motion, energy at rest. And we're going to go deeper. So now he starts talking about holograms. <laughs> yes, okay, here we go. He says, energy creates, stores, and retrieves meaning in the universe by expanding at certain frequencies in a three-dimensional mode that creates a living pattern called a hologram. All right. Jesus, you see what I mean? So I think when he says meaning here, he really means something like information. So if I would read that again, I would say energy creates, stores, and retrieves information in the universe by expanding at certain frequencies in a 3D mode um, that creates a pattern he's calling a hologram. Now, in the 80s, you know, when was this, 83? So in the 80s, when this was... Um, written, I can understand why this would seem like hokum. Um, what's interesting to me about it is that this is something that has become not exactly a, not exactly proven science, but serious science. Um, so you might have heard of the holographic universe theory, which was uh, which was published by a, a Stanford physicist named Leonard Susskind in 1995. So you know, uh, more than more than 10 years after this paper was written. And then also modern simulation theory in all of its forms. These are ideas that physicists take very seriously. The holographic universe and simulation theory. So he's talking about holograms, and we kind of have to take that seriously in light of Susskind's work and others. So let's get into it. He says, to create a hologram, energy and motion must interact with energy in a state of rest. To perceive the meaning of a hologram, energy must be passed through the interference, pa interference pattern generated by interaction. So, again, this aligns perfectly with my own mystical ideas that God's self-experience generates reality. That's what he's saying here where he says energy has to pass through its own energy field and have some sort of interaction with itself, and that creates a hologram. Well, if you, if you replace the word hologram with reality, we're again talking apples and apples. So he says energy and motion must interact with energy at rest. And here you have those opposites, the Ouroboros, the finite and the infinite, God and man. You have that, that uh, um, motif that we see in religion and mythology. We just have it in a scientific, um, you know, written in a sort of a scientific language. And again, energy passing through the interference pattern generated by inter interaction with itself. That's self-experience. Okay. He says, The universe is composed of interacting energy fields, some at rest and some in motion. According to Carl Pilgrim, a neuroscientist at Stanford University, the human mind is also a hologram, which attunes itself to the universal hologram by the medium of energy exchange thereby achieving consciousness. So imagine energy makes up the ground of all of reality. When energy you know, crosses itself, it has some sort of interaction, and that interaction it's aware of. Like, as soon as it touches itself, there's some sort of experience happening. The universe is experiencing itself, and it's aware of that experience. It's conscious of that experience. It's, it's like the experience itself creates... Um, or unlocks this potential that was dormant within it all along, this potential we call consciousness. So the moment energy can interact with itself, it, it has an experience, like it, it has the potential for experience and the potential for consciousness, and this unlocks that. All right, he says, with respect to states of expanded consciousness, such as Gateway uses, the process operates in the following way. As energy passes through the universal hologram and is perceived by the electrostatic fields which comprise the human mind, 
the human mind intercepts meaning directly from the holographic transmissions of the universe. Okay, so, so this is framed up as a different way of, of uh, gaining knowledge. And maybe it's not different. Maybe it's a different, maybe it's a, um, a sort of a, a, not different in kind, but different in scale between normal perception. So I look out at the world, I see things, I feel things, I touch things, I interact with things. And maybe this is no different. This is just happening at higher frequencies, happening at a quantum level. And what he's suggesting is it allows for information to be accessed directly from the universe. You see what I mean? I don't know how different that is from me looking, looking over here. And I'm receiving information directly from the universe. Um, this is something that, again, seems to be different in scale, not different in kind. And he says, The gateway succeeds in expanding human consciousness so that it can perceive ever more of the universal hologram, not accessible by sense perception. Okay, so really there isn't a difference between ordinary perception and this type of perception. It's the same type of thing going on, but there are certain things that aren't available to me in ordinary consciousness, right? I don't have access to my dreams in ordinary consciousness. I don't know what's happening in my cells or in the atoms that make up my body. I don't know what's happening in far-flung parts of the cosmos. Shit, I don't, know what's, I don't know what's happening on the moon or the sun, right? So there's lots of things going on I don't have access to. But through the gateway process, you're, you're expanding human consciousness to give yourself access to other information that's not ordinarily available to you. And if that weren't deep enough, this next bit is about time-space dimensions. Here we go. He says, To explain how human consciousness can transcend time-space, we must first appreciate what time and space are. Physicists define time as a measurement of energy and motion. In other words, a measurement of change. However, in order for energy to be in motion, it must first be limited in some way, confined at a specific location. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. Physicists define time as energy as, as a measurement of energy and motion. Um, and to me, I was a little scratching my head uh, on that one. But then he says, in other words, a measurement of change. Okay, so I can understand energy and motion is, uh, a, it, it is a measurement of change, right? Motion is change, right? Even if it's just a change of position, it's still change. And so he's saying, um, in order for it to change position or to change form or whatever it is that's supposed to be changing, it has to be limited in some way. And energy, um, there's no reason to assume energy is limited at all. You know, we have this idea of conservation of energy. Energy can't be created or destroyed. It's a very godlike thing. Um, so, you know, to suggest that energy in and of itself is somehow limited is kind of like a bold statement. I don't know that we have any evidence for that. And he says, in order for energy to be in motion, it must first be limited in some way so that it can uh, change, so that it can, it can be here and then now there. It has to be limited for that. Otherwise, it's here and there already, all at once, in a quantum superposition. You see what I mean? So it has to be con confined uh, at a specific location or space. So you've got this time and space component that is required for change to happen, for motion to happen. He says energy, which is not confined, cannot move because it is outside the dimensions of time, right? It's, it's everywhere all at once, right? If it's unlimited, it's everywhere all at once. How can you move if you're already there? See what I mean? He says it's also beyond space. If energy is in the state of infinity, there are no boundaries, no here to differentiate from there. Energy in infinity means energy uniformly extended without limit. It has no location. Energy in infinity is completely at rest and therefore cannot generate holograms. Okay, right? So you have, if energy is, is um, unlimited, unbounded, it's everywhere all at once. It can't move, it can't change, right? Because it's already there, it's already here, it's already in the state it's in. And so they conceptualize this as being at rest. If it's at rest, it can't interact with itself, can it? 
it can't turn over and touch itself. It can't loop back around. It can't, it can't, you know, cause a wave to, to, you know, create some sort of cause and effect relationship. It can't do any of that. If it's at rest, it can't do any of that. And because holograms or reality are, according to him, caused by this energy field interacting with itself, if it can't move, there are no holograms. So this is an idea. If, if you're asked uh, the question, what existed before the Big Bang? Or what existed before creation? This gives you some idea of what that is. And it's a very Hindu idea, by the way. This idea of this, this absolute, unknowable, um, perfect, uh, infinite stillness. That's what was there before the Big Bang. The, the nothing that is also everything. This paradox. This thing that existed before time and before space. Right? There was no time, there was no space, there was no reality. And so there couldn't have been any holograms, right? Because they're the same thing. And this is where it gets even more interesting. He says, it retains its inherent capacity for consciousness. So energy, even in this absolute state, energy at rest, it's still capable of consciousness. It still has the capacity to perceive holograms generated by, you know, uh, energy and motion. It's just not, there is no motion, so it's not happening. But it's, it's still there, dormant, as a potentiality in the ground of being that we're calling infinite energy. Whew. He says, energy in this state is termed by physicists energy in its absolute state, or simply the absolute. And he says, between the absolute and the material universe are various intervening dimensions to which human consciousness may gain access. Theoretically, human consciousness may continue to expand its perceptual capacity until it reaches the dimension of the absolute, at which point perception stops. At which point it joins with, with God, with the oneness. You know, that's something like what the Buddhists describe when they talk about nirvana, or what Christians talk about when they talk about heaven, or at one you know? And when he says human consciousness can be expanded to the point where uh, eventually it reaches this absolute, that means that your consciousness can join with the cosmic consciousness, something like that, that you can become one with God, which is something mystics say, which is something religious people say is possible. You know, this theosis idea that we hear about from the Orthodox uh, and things like that. And then he says, if that should happen, if you can expand your consciousness to the utmost, you're going to get to a point where perception stops. And I think, you know, we understand that this idea that the absolute is still at rest, and so there is no reality at that level. So there would be no perception, there'd be nothing to perceive, there's no experience possible. But it also reminds me of something else. It reminds me of this idea that, that whatever God is, is, is something unknowable. So when he says that when, you re when your mind reaches the state of the absolute, perception stops, I think about every mystic, and every religious you know, revelation, when people describe it, they say they, say they can't, don't have the words, they can't describe it. It's, it's, it's something that can't be spoken of. That in the Chinese Taoist tradition, they say the Tao that can be spoken of is not the real Tao. Right? Perception stops. And, and people who have experienced God say that, that... It's beyond concepts. It's beyond reality, and so there's no way of really talking about it. You can hint at it, you can talk around it, but there's no way of really talking about it. Another way I've described it is by saying that whatever God is, is something like infinite meaning. Whatever God means is something that is infinite. And so a word, a concept, is something that encapsulates um, meaning, right? A cat is something that starts here and stops here. And everything in this box, that's what we call cat. You can't do that to God, right? There is no alpha and omega. Just, you know, there is no caps. You can't, it's infinite meaning. It can't be contained. And so there's no way of conceptualizing it. It's beyond concepts. It's beyond knowledge in a way. It's something that you can experience, but it's not something that you can think of. It's not something you can conceptualize. And I just see those parallels here. All right, that brings me to the next section, 
which I'm going to call The Implications. And I'm going to read some disconnected pieces, but I want you to get the idea of what I think the implications are, and better yet, what uh, Lieutenant Colonel McDowell thinks the implications are. First, he says, the absolute is conscious energy. So you probably picked up on that already, but he, he believes that the absolute, which he's calling this, this the, well, the ground of being, the thing that reality is built upon or that create generates reality, that thing is an energy field, an, a limitless, boundless energy field. But not just that. It is a conscious energy field, or at least an energy field capable of, of consciousness. And scientists would agree with half of that, you know, physicists would agree with half of that, that the absolute is this boundless energy field, you know, the, the um, uh, you know, quantum, the quantum energy field, the wave function. But they aren't going to allow that that field is conscious, right? It's too hippy-dippy. It's too, you know, bordering on a religious idea. They're, ne they're never going to accept that. And he's saying, well, that's the case. The absolute is conscious energy. I don't know about you, but that sounds like as good a definition of God as I've heard. Let's continue. He says, the hologram is the infinite embodiment of the absolute, the vast pool of energy in a state of perfect rest, over which the physical universe is layered, and from whence it comes. So the absolute, of course, generates uh, and makes possible the rest of reality. Um, and he says that the hologram that it produces, that, that's the thing we're calling reality, uh, it is a finite embodiment of its of itself, which is something infinite, and that makes me think of a phrase from the Bible, which we'll circle back to, that it says we were made in the image of God. So this finite embodiment is something like the image, and the absolute is the real deal. You know, that's God itself, the unknowable thing. And he describes it as a vast pool of energy and a state of rest. Okay, he says to describe this, um, this this. Uh, physicist named Bentov. He says, Bentov uses the analogy of a very deep sea, comparing the still depths of the sea to the dimensions of the absolute, while the storm-tossed waves above represent the physical universe. The agitated currents of the sea between the turbulent surface and the totally still depths represent energy in the process of going into rest or coming out of rest. So here again, you get this model of process metaphysics like Alfred North Whitehead. You've got, and you've got the Ouroboros. You've got the still water, and you've got the water in motion. Even that Babylonian story that Jordan Peterson references when he talks about the Ouroboros is Tiamat and Apsu, the salt water and the fresh water. So you've got this. And by the way, water is a symbol uh, for the unconscious. It's a commonly accepted symbol of the unconscious. So you've got all of this stuff going on here, which is just brilliant. So Bentoff uses the analogy of a very deep sea. So the depths deep down, the ground of being, the very bottom of things where everything else rises from, that thing is still. Not in motion. It's unknowable. There's no holograms there. It's the ground of being, inaccessible by the holograms. It's God itself that we can seek for but can't find unless we experience it. That's the depths. Even Carl Jung in the Red Book talks about the depths, the spirit of the depths. I just think it's fucking amazing. Okay, so the depths of the sea are still. And the storm-tossed waves above represent the physical universe. So you have the absolute stillness down below, and all the motion is happening on the surface. And that motion is creating the hologram. That's the physical universe. It's a great model. And And... The, uh, the, the line between the stillness and the motion. This is something Jordan Peterson's talked about ad nauseum, where he, he talks about the, um, what does he call that? Um, the zone of proximal development. He talks about that line, that borderline between chaos and order, between the known and the unknown, between the conscious and the unconscious, that that's where, that's where everything's happening. That's where the world is. That's where change is happening. That's where experience is happening. That's where novelty happens. And, um, and this, this picture we have is exactly that. 
we have this interaction between energy at rest, God, and energy in motion, being. And, and energy is constantly going from a state of motion to a state of rest, like it's cycling back and forth between these two interacting states. And so you have the process, you have the self-experience, the water energy experiencing itself through this motion that's happening, through this exchange of energy that's happening between the motion state and the rest state, between the divine state and the, and the material state, right? Something like that. He says, consciousness provides the impetus to bring and keep energy in motion so that a specific reality will result. Right, so, so once the motion starts, and it's not clear how that begins, you might think about that as the Big Bang, not clear how that began, but once it begins, it's conscious. Consciousness exists. And consciousness creates the impetus to bring and keep energy in motion. Consciousness is the thing that's happening at the surface of the waters that's allowing the still depths, the, the God part, the absolute, to, to experience itself, to know what it itself is. And so it makes the unconscious conscious. And that is another uh, line right from Carl Jung, to make the unconscious conscious, to make God man, something like that. He said, our consciousness is that differentiated aspect of the universal consciousness, which resides within the absolute. Since, since consciousness exists beyond the bounds of time-space, it, like the absolute, has neither beginning nor end. The fundamental quantum of energy and its associated consciousness is eternal. Okay, so he makes this connection between, uh, between consciousness and God. You know, he said, Con consciousness exists beyond space and time, just like the absolute. So our consciousness is something that is either identical with or at least connects us to the thing that we're calling God, the absolute, the energy in its absolute state. And so, and so our consciousness has no beginning or end, just like God has no beginning or end, just like the universe has no beginning or end, just like experience has no beginning or end. It just continues. So there's a connection between, you know, the force of life in us, the thing we might call soul or spirit, and God itself. That's not an unusual thing for a religious person to, to think or to say. But again, we have it in scientific language here, and, and so it's interesting. There's also some, something that I notice. Where he talks about there being no beginning and end to the absolute. Um, so that he, and that it's, so it's eternal, essentially. He's talking about the conservation of energy. He's talking about a well-known idea. Again, energy can't be created or destroyed. It just changes forms from one to another. It's this eternal thing. But when he relates that to consciousness, he's kind of making the argument that the, that the conservation of energy concept is, some, is sort of like identical to this idea uh, that religious folks uh, believe. Uh, we just call it the immortality of the soul, right? That, that, that we don't we're not done when, when we die, that something carries on. So conservation of energy is a scientific idea, and the immortality of the soul as a religious idea here are brought together. Right? He says, since consciousness exists beyond the bounds of time-space, it, like the absolute, like God itself, has neither beginning or end. It's eternal. Okay, he says... The concept of the universe, which some physicists are coming to accept, is identical in its essential aspect with the one known to civilizations in the ancient world. Nor are the theories presented in this paper at variance with the essential tenets of a Judeo-Christian stream of thought. The concept of visible reality, or the created world, being an emanation of an omnipotent divinity who is completely unknowable in his primary state of being. The absolute in infinity is a concept straight out of Hebrew mystical philosophy. He says even the Christian concept of the Trinity shines through the description of the absolute as presented in this paper. Energy in infinity fits the Christian metaphysical concept of the Father, 
while the infinite self-consciousness resonant in that energy corresponds to the sun. Right, so that, that, that's where you see the idea of the sort of the image of God. We'll, 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 we'll continue here. He says, this is so because in order to attain self-consciousness, the absolute must project a hologram of itself and then perceive it. Right? It has to have that separation. The Ouroboros has to have that separation. Um, he says, that hologram is a mirror image of the absolute in infinity, but is one step removed. So the hologram, reality, material material reality like you and I and the cosmos for that matter that is a mirror image of the absolute in infinity but one step removed and that is the is the difference between the image of God and God itself and when the Bible says God that we were created in God's image we might we, we might just reword that and say that we are the hologram God created through through experience of itself we are the thing that makes that experience possible. We're the thing that makes the that makes the unconscious conscious. We're the thing that makes the potential we're calling God actual. Right? That's what it means to be an incarnation. Like we Christians, Christians we call Jesus an incarnation, but but the cosmos is an incarnation. All right, he says, finally, our description of the universal hologram is found in, in various representations in virtually every religious system of antiquity, whether of Eastern or Western derivation. Whether it's the Hebrew tree of life or its Hindu counterpart or the Chinese spiral through the fourfold powers, the ultimate meaning is the same. Mystics the world over, it seems, have perceived the universal hologram. right? They've seen God. That's what that means. And have incorporated that intuitive knowledge in their religious writings from antiquity to the present. Oh, man. And that brings me to my conclusion. Okay, so I don't know what's more strange. That the U.S. military is developing and engaging in programs based on the validity of extrasensory borderline supernatural capabilities or that they openly connect it to religious and metaphysical ideas. I must say, it is compelling. The mixture of quantum physics, space-time, and the manipulation of brainwaves with explorations of the mysteries of consciousness and ideas like the absolute is astonishing. It allows us to speak of God with some semblance of empiricism. It allows even the skeptical materialist to come a little further down Alice's rabbit hole. And I hope that it does. I'm reminded of great thinkers whose memories were irreparably damaged by their eccentricities. People like Nikola Tesla, Baruch Spinoza, Alfred Wallace, and Carl Jung. I can't help but wonder what the world might be like today if we allowed science to embrace spirit. This brings me to the incredible parallels I see in the Gateway Process paper to my own spiritual insights. Those little gems of revelation that I received from years of study, from intense introspection, and even, even from mystical experience are present in this paper. The fact of such synchronicities strengthens my resolve about the truth of them. The existence of God as the absolute, as the ground of being. The fact that this ground is inherently capable of consciousness. The idea that a process between this divine thing and itself, that self-experience is somehow generating what we call reality. The essential unity between the absolute and its finite representations. All of these things have come to me through intuition or revelation. And they have been expressed by mystics throughout the ages. We hear echoes of it in the Tao and Vedanta and Kashmiri Shaivism and Sufism and Kabbalah and among the Christian mystics. We see it emerge in the philosophies of idealism and panpsychism 
and even in various interpretations of quantum physics. And when the evidence stacks up this thickly and the synchronicities abound, it becomes ever harder to shake our heads in disbelief. It forces us to consider the unbelievable. It opens our eyes to something which is so prevalent, so obvious, so ubiquitous, that we can't see it, even though it's directly before us always. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>